I'm Aaron from Austin. I'm Ben from Louisiana. I'm Kara from Burlington, Vermont. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is an old friend of our show. He's the editor of BoingBoing.net, one of the uh, world's most popular uh, weblogs. Uh, blogs, I guess you, we have called them for roughly the last 10 years. Uh, he's also the editor of Make Magazine and the author of a brand new book called Made by Hand, Searching for Meaning in a Throwaway World. It's about uh, his embrace of DIY, do-it-yourself culture, uh, despite the fact that he wasn't exactly uh, born into it. Mark, welcome welcome back to The Sound of Young America. Thanks a lot, Jesse. It's been a while. So I want to know whether you were handy or good at cooking or grew up on a farm or any of those things before you were, say, you know, 30 years old. No, I wasn't. When I was in my 20s, I tried to be handy, and I did things like home improvement projects where you know, we bought a house in Boulder, Colorado, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll put down my own kitchen floor, put down the tiles. So, you know, put down the grout, laid down the tiles, and then for some reason, in a period of like a couple of weeks, about half the tr- tiles just cracked. And I thought, you know, it, I probably put the grout on wrong or something. So I did that. You know, that was disappointing. And then putting wallpaper on, I could never get it straight, and it was crooked. And those kinds of things were just so discouraging to me that I kind of abandoned it. And around that time, that's when desktop publishing started taking off. And that was really appealing to me, design and and uh, putting things together. And, you know, you have the undo function, which is fantastic. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that, because before Boing Boing was a popular blog, it was a zine in the sort of golden age of zines in the early 1990s. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, how Boing Boing went from being in print to being online first. Yeah, you know, it, it was really a slow process. The zine was a ton of fun. I, I loved doing that, and the whole zine scene of the late 80s and early 90s was just fantastic. I don't know if you were familiar with a, a zine called Fact Sheet 5. This was, was the zine that was like every zine, Yeah, right? the zine of zines. It was kind of like... Uh, you know, like the Yahoo of zines, just a directory. And so every month I would get it and I would just go through it and with a yellow highlighter pick all the zines I wanted. I would send Boing Boing. They would send me copies of their zines. I made a lot of friends who are still my friends today back in that era. Um, and then uh, when I started working at Wired Magazine, I started working there in like 1993. Um, somebody said, oh, you should register boingboing.com as a domain. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So we did that, and I just threw a few of the old articles from Boing Boing up there, added a little bit of original content, but you know, really not that many people, maybe 300 people a day visited. And uh, I kind of forgot about it, you know, to the point where when it was time to register the domain again, um, I just didn't bother to do it, and somebody snagged it, a design company in Washington, D.C. Um, but then I, so I, I registered boingboing.net, and this was this was in an era when I mean you're talking about the zine of zines. I remember having 
Um, I, I remember having a hard copy thing that was called like the internet telephone book or something like that. And looking up, I, I had a friend named, a uh, family friend named Ken Mackey. And Ken, I knew, had an email address. And I remember looking him up in this physical book to find out what his email address was. And his name was in there. It was maybe, I don't know, an inch thick. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. There were, like, at first there really weren't search engines, you know. Nobody was indexing the web. So they had these hard copies. There were this, this series of books called Net Guides that, uh, you know, Michael Wolf, the uh, Vanity Fair columnist, had published. And they were, you know, in different subjects and stuff. But, it, yeah, it was a completely different era back then. Um, and so Boing Boing just kind of you know, floated around. I, I paid very little attention to it. And one reason is because back then it was hard to add content online because of the, just the publishing tools were tough. You know, you'd like write the HTML in a text editor and then you'd open your FTP program and upload it. And then you would look at the way it turned out and, you know, there was always a mistake and you'd have to, you know, edit it and re-upload it. It just was like the inertia of getting something done like that was a hassle. So then I, I think it was in 1999, I was researching an article about weblogs. At the time, Blogger had started. And I think there were, you know, there were several hundred blogs on the internet. So it was becoming something kind of interesting. So I wrote an article about it. And as, you know, part of the research, I registered a, a Blogger account and uh, played around with it and um, really liked it a lot. So in 2000 was when I, you know, started actually using blogger for Boing Boing. And that's when I realized, you know, it was just as easy to write a blog post as, as it was to write an email and press send. You just write a post and press publish and you were online. I think that's one reason that blogging took off was just the ease of it. And, you know, the, the uh, uh, standard format of reverse chronological order was something people could grasp very easily. And so that's really, you know, was a, a big revelation to me, I think, to a lot of other people. Your story in the book starts with uh, a point of inflection that happened to you immediately after the uh, wonder of this first generation of uh, internet publishing wore off a little bit. Um, in 2003, at the uh, at the basically the low tide of the uh, internet bubble bursting, tell me about what happened then. Yeah, well, uh, Carla, my wife and I, we were both uh, freelance journalists. We had contracts with various magazines. Most of them were technology, you know, internet technology magazines. I had a contract with the Industry Standard, with Wired Magazine. Carla was a columnist for, uh, I think it was like called Computer Life. Uh, I was writing for Yahoo Internet Life. Um, all these magazines, most of them aren't around anymore. But uh, it was, you know, it, it was a bad time because... The, the magazines were very thin. Uh, it was harder to get work. Um, and it was just kind of a depressing time. You know, p- people had the, the wind was knocked out of everybody's sails. And so we were wondering what we wanted to do next with our lives. And so one of the options was that we would try to live somewhere that was less expensive and uh, a simpler life. You know, we were here in L.A. and things were really busy. We had a young kid and another one on the way and, you know, just driving all around being stuck on the freeways was not appealing anymore. So we thought about moving somewhere to the South Pacific. Um, and we had been to... Naturally, a, yeah, of course. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you been, made the natural <laughs> leap from Los Angeles to the South Pacific. Yeah. God forbid you should move to Portland. <laughs> um, 
you know, we really were able to slow down and enjoy a lot of things like preparing our own food. Um, one of the fun things was uh, we had coconuts in, in our yard and they would fall out of the trees. And you we, would use them to make telephones to call yeah, them. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, learning how to open them and use a coconut scraping bench to extract the process. It was like, you know, a, a, an all day process to extract the coconut meat and then convert it into, you know, scones and pancakes and just doing that and realizing how fun it was to make our own food like that. We started making our own tortillas because you couldn't get them on the island and our own pasta and being able to have that time to like just really slow down and be kind of a active participant in creating your own food was something that was really a lot of fun. I mean, it probably wasn't something that most people would have to fly 6,000 miles away and sell their house to learn about, but you know, that's what we ended up doing. Um, but it was worth it. So when we came back to L.A. after four and a half months on this island, um, we, you know, said, that, let's, let's keep that idea of, you know, slowing down parts of our lives so that we can, you know, be more mindful and aware and, and kind of appreciative of, of, of the things that we do to keep us alive. You now had the skills to process coconuts if you had given a coconut bench. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure that you were like me or, uh, like Christian, the intern over here, I'm presuming in that you, um, you had a limited skill set, uh, in terms of what kinds of things you could make and do for yourself. So much of, um, the modern technological lifestyle is about, um, you know, focusing on one thing that you can be really productive at, earn money and then trade that money to someone else who has the skill and technology to do something for you really efficiently. Um, so were there, were there things that you knew how to do to slow down, or were you starting from zero? Yeah, I, you know, I really did have to start from zero. And I think um, another thing that kind of pushed me in the direction of doing more DIY stuff was when I started working for Make Magazine, which is, you know, a technology project magazine, I came into contact with, you know, dozens, if not, you know, over 100 DIYers who are, like, really great, you know, good at doing things, high technology and low technology. And every one of them, you know, told me that they really weren't born handy, that they made a lot of mistakes, and that they were okay with the idea that they were going to make mistakes. And they realized, you know, Yes, I'm going to spe you know, spend money on things that are going to break. I'm going to destroy tools. I'm going to waste money. But I'm going to keep on doing it because I know ultimately you know, I'll, I'll succeed if I keep on trying and I'll continue to build my skills. And so I thought, all right, you know, I, I, I will, I will uh, try to force that mindset on myself and see if it works or not. And so you know, then I, I said about in the book, you know, writing down a number of things that I, that I wanted to try, like, you know, building a chicken coop and raising chickens and becoming a beekeeper and learning how to make my own uh, cigar box guitars, uh, learning electronics enough to do things like uh, retrofit my espresso maker so I could control the temperature more precisely, um, uh, learning how to whittle so I could make my own uh, kitchen utensils. I, re <laughs> I really like the espresso maker control because it's such a it's such a wonderful combination of 1925 and 2010. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and that turns out to be like one of the the, the best things that I I did. Um, 
the the projects that I picked, uh, I wanted to have ones that had a, 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 a real impact on my life. You know, a lot of things, a lot of things that DIYers do, you know, they make like robots and, and cool rockets, you know, or elaborate models of castles and things, which I think is really great. And I'm envious at their skills and stuff. But for me, I need to have an, you know, the, the process has to be fun, but the end result has to be something that I can appreciate too. So I always pick things like that. So espresso, I'm kind of an espresso fiend and I, I have it, you know, make my own two or three times a day. And I knew I wasn't very good at it. You know, I'd go to Intelligentsia and the, it would be far superior than what I could make. So I, you know, I took lessons from the director of uh, espresso research at Intelligentsia, this great guy named Kyle Glanville. And he gave me lessons and he told me, you know, that temperature is one of the very most important things when, that you have to control when you make espresso. And so it, it turns out that the machine I had, which is a popular machine, the temperature can vary like 40 degrees, this the is water temperature. Due to some kind of specific issue with the kind of temperature sensor being sort of like a binary on-off yes. type of thermostat. Exactly. And, and, you know, the analogy is you're driving down the road and you see a, see a stop sign and it would be like as soon as you, you get, get to the stop sign slamming on your brakes. Well, of course, you're going to, you know, skid through the intersection. And that's uh, – so the other approach is, you know, as you see the stop sign, you press on the brake pedal and you just press harder and harder until when you, once you reach it, you stop at the intersection. So I switched the system and put a uh, different kind of temperature sensor and a little miniature controller called the Proportional Integral Derivative Temperature Control System on there. And so then you can lock the temperature in so it only varies like one degree. And so, you know, I, I have that variable down um, Lockdown. So now I just have to worry about, you know, like the grind and the freshness and, and other things. But the espresso is consistently better every day. And, you know, it's a big part of my life. And, and I feel like I've, I've improved that part of it. And, you know, it's just a fun thing. And, and there are always new things to learn with it. You know, so now I, I recently took a, a class learning about uh, steaming, you know, uh, milk and, and doing uh, uh, the art, you know, latte art and stuff like that. So Anyway, it's fun. Um, when you made this list of things that you wanted to do yourself, um, did you consult with the missus? <laughs> um, probably not as much as I should have because it, you know it definitely <laughs> led to some friction, especially the bees. That was a, that was a big that was a big deal because you know my wife has never liked insects of any kind, and and bees you know are are among the worst because they sting. And so, you know, it was like, you know, just getting the bees. Uh, she said, okay, well, how many bees are, are you going to have? Like 50? I, I don't think you should have more than 50. But, you know, a beehive is like between 100 and 300,000 bees. And so, you know, I, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, where, where were we going to put it? She was afraid they would, you know, bug us in the garden and stuff. And so it caused some definite friction. But in the end... They're far enough away that they don't bother us. No one has been stung except me, and I've only been stung once. And uh, once we started getting honey and extracting the honey, now my wife is, like, very fond of the bees. It's interesting. You know, <laughs> once they prove themselves to be useful, <laughs> it changed. And, and my attitude changed to the bees, too. Now I, I, they've become a lot cuter now that we have honey. <laughs> Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mark Frauenfelder. He's the founder of the popular blog BoingBoing.net, and he's also the editor-in-chief of Make Magazine. His new book is called Made by Hand, Searching for Meaning in a Throwaway World. It's about his struggles and triumphs in making things for himself. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a few of these projects specifically. Um, one of the first ones that you write about in the book, and one that I remember you writing a lot about on Boing Boing, is killing your lawn. Um, you live like I do here in Southern California, where um, we are you know, in the midst of a desert that is uh, covered superficially in lawns. You know there are there are giant lawns in the center of this six million population major urban metropolis that's in a continual state of drought. Um, what did you What did you have to do to uh, get rid of your lawn and uh, uh, put something else in its place? Lawns are just wasteful. You know, I, I read Michael Pollan's books and you know books about how to, you know, turn, turn uh, edible estates, you know, basically how to eat the things that grow so that your plants have a purpose uh, other than dec- decorative. Um, they're, they're in a way, they're sort of, it's sort of a, a class statement that comes out of the 19th century, like the landscaping equivalent of uh, binding a woman's feet so that you know she doesn't have to walk. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like putting, putting, a, putting a completely functionless plant uh, on land so that you show that you don't have to work it. Yes, yeah. I'm so rich that I don't need to use my land to grow food. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it's carried over, uh, and people have forgotten the, the original purpose of it. So anyway, I, I wanted to kill the lawn and then start using it to grow uh, vegetables and, and uh, you know, basically an orchard. What I wanted to do was grow fruit trees and stuff like that. In the end, we moved from the house before I was able to do that. Um, but the the folks who bought the house from us uh, are actually using it now. I, I was just over there for the weekend, and they're doing some really cool uh, gardening stuff. They got these big, like, tubes of some kind of rice, uh, uh, not the not the actual rice grain, but the the part of the plant. And they're they're in these kind of decomposable tubes. They're like these giant snakes, and you can like roll them up and throw dirt into <laughs> them, and have like these raised bed gardens. But anyway, they're doing it, and they've also. Uh, using my chicken coop that I built there for their own chickens. So I'm really glad that they're carrying on what, what I had started at that house. When you undertake these huge projects, it seems like a, a big part of your personal process was learning that it was okay to be bad at them. Yeah, it was. I And, um, you know... I I figured it was okay to make mistakes on things as long as it wasn't going to, you know, put anybody in, in physical d- danger or something, <laughs> you know. It, it would all be something that would, I would learn from, you know, hopefully get better at. And uh, I, I don't know if it's I, – I don't mind seeking out the advice of experts, you know, and kind of taking classes and things like that. Um, what I, I don't like for some reason, and I don't know why, it would be like – having someone side by side with me, like doing something, I'd rather take the class and then go home and just try to do it on my own. So that's kind of what I did. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that made, made it so it was a lot hard. I, you know, I made more mistakes and it was a lot more difficult to learn something that way. But for me, maybe it's because I'm too embarrassed to like make mistakes in front of other people. 
that that's probably what it, what it is. There's so often uh, like a really hard line between things that we do to be productive and things that we do to entertain ourselves. So people spend a lot of time working really hard uh, at their jobs. They spend a lot of time uh, working negative hard, you know, watching television or whatever. Was it difficult for you to adjust to spending time doing things that were in between, things that were productive, that had, say, food at the end of them, Mm -hmm. um, but weren't... uh, weren't a more efficient way to get food yeah i i I know what you mean i i think like you know carving wooden spoons is a good example of that you know you can go to ikea and get a carved you know spoon wooden spoon for 99 cents you have a tremendous passion (laughs) conveyed in this book for the carving of wooden spoons (laughs) there's something wonderful about it i i compare it to uh i'm i imagine it's a lot like knitting you know i learned how to knit but it didn't really stick with me i i uh it was it was not as fun for me as carving spoons, but it kind of put me, you know, I could see the relationship. It's you know, it's it's meditative. You know, it it slows you down. You have to watch what you're doing, but you can still have a conversation with people. A lot of times, what I would do if I had a conference call uh, for for like Make Magazine or something, I would just put on my headphones and have the call, but and just sit out on the back and just work on the spoon. Um, and it's a lot of fun, you know. If you look at it in one way, it's a really inefficient way to spend your time because if it takes me three hours to carve a spoon that costs, you know, 99 cents, that's like 30 cents an hour for my time if I wanted to sell the spoon. But uh, it's really, it's great. And again, you know, the end result is something that I can use. And it's fun, you know, to stir up my pancake batter or soup using a spoon that I made myself. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but when, really, if you do that, it's something that you appreciate every time you have it, you know, and the more you can do like that in your life, I think the more of a sense of control you have over your environment is is a good thing. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking this time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was great to have you. Thanks a lot, Jesse. It's M- fun. Mark Frauenfelder is the editor of Make Magazine, uh, uh, founder of Boing Boing at boingboing.net, and the author of the new book, Made by Hand, Searching for Meaning in a Throwaway World. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music provided to us by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our associate producer is Julia Smith. And our intern is Christian Natividad. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download any of our past programs, absolutely 100% for free, or share something that you've heard today with a friend. We'll see you next week right here on The Sound of Young America.